the optimal life. Take us back. You've gone through something that many of us fear going through, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, nonetheless. And uh, back 20-some-odd years ago, pretty close to it, uh, pretty close to 20 years ago in 2004, you did lose your wife. Take us back before that. When did you guys first learn of her breast cancer diagnosis? That occurred in 2000. And at that particular point in time, uh, the shock of it sitting in the physician's office was muffling. It sounded as if he and my wife were speaking through their hand. You know, you got that rah, 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 rah kind of sound, and I was uh, in shock. Uh, quiet. I had no response other than to hold my wife's hand. Of course, Judith being who she was, was audible and questioning and purposeful in her presence with the physician. She realized that he was uh, downplaying her knowledge base, kind of placating her in a sense, because she's not one to take that. So she stands up for herself and she's willing to speak up and say, listen, I know my body. I know how it works. Uh, I've been a nurse. Don't treat me like some stranger coming in here that you have a diagnosis for and just giving it to them and Sorry. See you later. How long were you guys married for at that point? We were together for going on 14 years. You have any kids? Not together, but we do have. Uh, I have two children from a previous marriage, and she had two children from her previous marriage. So we had four children. And what caused you guys to go to the doctors that day? Did you guys, did she feel lumps? What was it that triggered it? Uh, no, she went for her, her yearly mammogram uh, three months late. Uh, we had just purchased a home, and she was so excited about uh, decorating and painting and things of that nature that she put off her mammogram. And finally uh, made an appointment and went, and they found a small lump. Turned out to be a very aggressive form. And the doctor told us, the neurosurgeon that operated on her much later told us that if she had gone at her regular scheduled time instead of three months later, that they would have missed it. That's how small it was. Mm. So in that case, uh, his words were, be thankful that she's still here. And uh, because within a year, she could have been gone. Right, you guys would have never saw it. They would have saw never seen it on time. Nope. A few months later, it would have probably been noticeable, but you guys wouldn't have gotten checked, and then it would have been too late. Yep. So that night, when you go home from that kind of news, though, what is what's the environment like at home? What's what's it like going to bed that night? Do you remember specifically how you felt? Quiet, embracing, and that's it. How was she doing? What was her what was she do? What was her energy like? 
uh, her, her energy was was fearful. Uh, she was crying. Mm. I mean, I was crying also, but essentially we were quiet. We weren't sharing anything other than embracing, just holding one another, being there, being present. It was probably pretty tough to fall asleep that night. Yeah, the, the, the birds had actually woken us up. Yeah. So, uh, so what do you do? What do you do from there? You get the diagnosis. Uh, somebody that's listening, they're going through something similar. They just find out this shockingly terrible, terrible news. Um, what's next? Where, where do you go from there? Uh, what next is uh, biopsy, uh, deciding or determining uh, the treatment protocol, and telling the family. <laughs> mm. Uh, telling the kids, telling the children, telling the parents, driving home after the biopsy, that was her her moment of after flailing her arms in in the car like she was swatting a bee, saying to me, What about the how are we gonna tell the children? And who was the who was the toughest one to tell of everybody? I think her daughter. I think her daughter was the toughest. They were very close. How old was her daughter, family. Frank, at that time? Uh, let's see. She's going to be fifty this year in August, actually. Um, wow! So that's twenty three years ago. She finds out, so she would have been twenty seven. Yeah, give or take. Then, yeah, and she. Uh, she moved in with us because she was going to graduate school at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. So she was with us for uh, a, a portion of that period. How did the children react to that kind of news? Your, your children are all somewhat adult children at that point, or, or they are adult children. How do they react? Uh, not well. They didn't take it well. Uh, nobody really took, took it well. Uh, the parents were in a state of shock. However, her dad, having gone through throat cancer for a number of years and survived that treatment protocol, was very aware of the uh, potentials and the downfalls and the pitfalls of chemotherapy and, and treatment. So he was kind of like the buffer for everybody else. Did you guys ultimately go the chemo route? Yes, uh, she went to the chemo route. She had a mastectomy, uh, 16 lymph nodes removed, none showing any signs of uh, uh, metastases. And, uh, but then it, it, it kind of reared its ugly head uh, about a year and a half later, uh, moving into her brain with a, a tumor the size of a kiwi fruit sitting right on her brainstem. Oh Jesus! Um, and survived that surgery. The percentages were not good, but she survived. And and on top of that, she goes back to teaching. She, so she ended up having not only surgery of her breast on her breast. She had did she have? You said she had one of her breasts removed. Yep. Okay, and then on top of that, she has to get brain surgery. Yes. And she recovers from the brain surgery 
uh, uh, this neurological procedure and is able to go back into the classroom? Not immediately. Yeah, within four or five months. But at the same token, she we told her, you know, just chill out, you know, recover, do what you need to do. She says, no, I, I can't. I can't sit home any longer. I need to get back to work. And, wow. she, and she went back to school. She went back to teaching legal research and writing uh, at the uh, college. And God bless her. So what happens? That's a couple of years later. You're into it. It's 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 a hit or miss. You never know what to expect at this point. I assume it's always there in the back of your mind or in the front of your mind. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the biggest issue, the biggest issue, because how do you move forward? How do you take a step forward as as a family and as a husband on top of all of that? Because growing up, we're prodigies of a patriarchal environment. We stand stoic, emotionless, quiet, tight to the chest. How do you break through that? Mm. You don't. You live in two worlds. You got one foot in your upbringing and that patriarchal experience. And then you have the other foot in the world of disease of which you have no control no answers you you get torn apart yeah it's got to be completely tormenting so you guys guys go through this rough couple of years she then gets back to teaching where does it go where does it go south what causes it to go south uh go south uh, about 10 months later and it metastasizes again, this time in the neck and in the nervous system. And uh, she basically sat on the end of the exam table and looked at the neurosurgeon and the oncologist and said, I'm done. Natasha and I are standing there in total shock. Who's Natasha? That's our oldest daughter. Okay. That's Judith's daughter. <laughs> I don't want to be I don't want chemo anymore I'll give you one more shot at radiation because she went deaf because of it they had to put a mask they made a mask for her head to treat her brain with gamma rays for the tissue around the area that gets surgically removed and that was it she said leave me alone uh, I want quality of life I want conscious time with my husband and family. I'm tired of being sick. I'm tired of being poked, prodded, and shot at. Because she called the, every time they gave put her in a gamma machine, getting shot. Because it would make this bang, bang, bang noise. And so she resolved herself to that. And... I was supportive, and Tasha was supportive, and in the back of our minds, neither of us wanted her to give up. Sure. But you have to come to a, a point of relinquishment. You have to kind of set yourself up for her death. When was and, this at this point, Frank? Was this 2003 or was this now in 2004? This was uh, this was 2003. 
mm-hmm. um, that Christmas of 2003, she made we made a decision we would sell a home and move to Florida, be down here in North Central Florida. Uh, we stayed with her parents. We bounced back and forth. We stayed with her parents for a couple of weeks, stayed with my parents for a couple of weeks. She wanted quality t- quality of time with them. What day did she pass in 2004? Uh, July 17th, two days okay, So you before still had about seven months with her. Time. You had seven yeah. months at that point. Um, take us to that day. What What happens? How does it happen? And they are treading on some pretty thin ice, but I will I will express my sense of the day that just as I felt the sound muffling aspect of the diagnosis, the couple of days prior to her passing were the same. It seemed as though I was walking through the water and the beach that was up to my knees. You know, you push through, you struggle with it, you you try to make sense of it. And at the same time, you're the primary caregiver. You have to be conscious to everything that's going on around you with hospice and family and doctors. and uh, It's mind-boggling. I, I have no words of support for anyone going through that at this particular point in time, other than to say their experience is going to be theirs. And... I had their prayers are with me because it wasn't easy. Life has to become extremely scary in that moment when you have to say goodbye and you know, like, this is it. We just closed a chapter. How do I move on with life at this point? How do I get back to normalcy? That has to be very, very overwhelming. Uh, it is. It is overwhelming. And it took me years, uh, to be honest, to come to, to some form of balance with it. It's uh, she kept saying, Jews kept saying to me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to prepare you for this because she had she had made peace with God. She had done her due diligence in understanding her place in space and time and how her spirit was going to cross over. She made those choices. She made those decisions. And she was trying to be supportive of me and recognizing how much of a basket case I was. Um, Did you fight with her about that decision, that last one? The, the third time where she says, I, I'm not doing this anymore. Did, did that cause some issues? It, it, it caused it, it caused some immediate issues. But I have to tell you, they were not. Um, 
it, it wasn't like doing uh, uh, 12 rounds with Muhammad Ali kind of thing, but it was emotionally uprooting because as a chiropractic physician, I understand the, 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 the medical background, the necessities as much as she did. And the potentials and the, what could happen in terms of health, the turning it around, the mindset aspects, by giving in, so to speak, you're relinquishing your emotional strength in relationship to the disease. Mm. And that is something that I wasn't able to come to terms with. My wife did. She very simply said, Dolan, I love you, and I love every day that we have spent together, and I love every moment of my memory of you, and I will take you with me in little snapshots. And I didn't think much about that statement, and that was probably, uh, I'd say, two weeks after she had the surgery in the, on her brain. So this is before it had metastasized to the neck, and that was the final straw kind of thing. It didn't come to me until I was sitting on the bed next to her, watching her chest rise and fall, one eye open, nonverbal, listening to music. We One of her end-of-life things on her list, which was like a kid's Christmas list of Santa Claus, um, she wanted to listen to 70s and 80s music. So there was a cassette player and a headset, and that was on her for four days. Mm. Do you think it was harder to go through something like that? Is it is it harder when there's a long goodbye? Or is it is it harder if you lose somebody just so suddenly and, and have no chance to say goodbye? I, I, it's hard to say, right? Yeah, Nate, that's an excellent question. Because, you know, when there's a long-term illness and you have this sense of finality every day it's not it's not like giving your spouse a kiss in the morning and then not seeing them at night because the person dropped dead of a heart attack right that longevity that length of time is like a percolator it's a it's it's a soup that's on the stove and just brewing away mm -hmm long periods and you become you grit your teeth to the point where you think they're going to break you're going to crush them because your anxiety and your fear and your anger is just boiling and boiling and boiling away do you have a lot of dreams of your wife after she passes I did um, I dreamt of 
uh, <laughs> I dreamt of her the, the, that evening or that night. I had the sense that she was in the room talking to me. Mm. I, you know, and I woke up and it pitch black and uh, I could have sworn that I, I was having a conversation with her. But it's wow. a possibility. But then again, you know, things are Then you wake up from those dreams sometimes and they feel so intense and so real. And then you realize they're gone. Waking up from something like that has got to be so tough at times. Uh, it, it is. I mean, you wake up and either you're in a cold sweat. Yeah. Um, and you draw your knees to your chest and you just start bawling. Yeah. It's, so it, it is what it is in that situation, you know. So you said the first few years after were excruciatingly difficult and painful. And then you came across um, journaling, I believe. So talk to us a little bit about what you started doing, Frank, to heal, to overcome this devastating loss of losing your wife. The journaling aspect, both of us started actually a couple of weeks after the diagnosis in 2000. My wife jumped right in. Judith was like, oh, nice. I, I'm loving this. Me, get it. I was twirling the pen, tapping the table, couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, how to put it down, what am <laughs> I going to say? You know, so, but eventually I was doodling. I was drawing pictures and stick figures and and eventually it turned around and I started to actually write things. But it was, the journal was my my therapist, <laughs> for lack of a better word. There's nothing no other way I could look at it. Because it allowed me to put down the most morose anger, frustration, despair, sorrow, beat somebody to a pulp feeling. And all of it came out and on paper. And that is actually where the book began. That was the book. Now, in 2004, after she passed, I was like her. I couldn't put the pen down. I was just writing like crazy. Let me just stop you, Frank. Let me just ask you back to what you just mentioned before. Who did you want to beat up? Who did you want to, who were you angry at? (laughs) I wanted to beat up the oncologist. (laughs) The first one, not the second one, the first one. Because I really did feel as though he was placating us. He walked into that room, no handshake, no introduction, a high, sat down behind his desk and went through the report, gave us the, the, the diagnosis and this, 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 the potential and said he'll refer her to an oncologist and that was the end of the appointment. I'll see you later. Right. Poor bedside manner. You were just another oh. number. There was no emotion behind it. You guys are given the worst news you've ever given in your life and it was just like, sayonara, take care. Were you upset? Were you frustrated with God? Did you ever get mad and angry at, at the higher power? Uh, more than you could ever imagine. I was not a happy camper. And I'm, I was, I'm Greek and Italian. 
I was brought up in a Catholic household and an Eastern Orthodox household. And when this happened, it was like, oh, really? <laughs> and you want me to come to church Sunday? Mm. <laughs> Boy, are you in for a surprise? Because that's not happening. And that went like that for quite a while. Um, I was very upset and angry with God because I felt as though Judith and I had found one another at a time in our lives where we allowed ourselves to be ourselves and to be with another human being. And that level of respect and acceptance is hard to find. It's hard to, yeah, hard to find. And Judith and I found each other. And How have you moved on with your relationship? You were very angry with God. Mm. Sounds like you grew up in a very religious background and atmosphere. Um, you obviously had a very contentious period of time with him or whatever you think God is. Uh, how do you come to, to terms with forgiving? Did you ever forgive? You, you forgive by forgiving yourself. You had to give yourself the, I gave myself the opportunity to accept and appreciate all of the gifts and time that Judith had and I had together. God took second seat. I had to start somewhere. And it was with it was with me and how my relationship with Judith was just the most wonderful thing for both of us to have experienced in our lives together. So you turn to gratitude, it sounds like. Exactly. Mm. Acceptance and gratitude and purposefulness, um, good thoughts in, good thoughts out. So you talk to us about go. those good thoughts, your positive uh th this what you have this system of positive what you call habit habits um take us through some of those and, and explain to us how those are incorporated to overcoming a devastating loss like this uh, all right so you're stuck in a, in this umbrella of negativity and anger and fear all of the ramifications associated with having lost a spouse. And then at some particular, at some point in time, I had to, to find an opportunity to be responsive rather than reactive because all of the fear and anger and all of those emotional conditions or situations are negative. And that is exactly what we're, we deal with on a daily basis anyhow. So we're to every situation that we feel has got some level of negativity in it. So I had to move away from that. So I asked myself what I was consuming that was either positive or negative. And does it feed my soul? or add calories to my grief and loss. And what I came to understand is that, number one, I had to accept the loss, allow myself the opportunity to truly grieve 
the loss of my wife, but not feel as though I was getting stuck. I could move forward, but I needed things, I needed tools. I didn't have any. But what I began to realize is that if I accept it, and if I allow my level of expectation to be lower, my grief won't define me, won't define my life. Then I had to surrender. I had to surrender to somebody. You know, some people would say, oh, okay, well, you surrendered to God. No, what I did was I surrendered to a friend, someone who could listen to me and will not challenge what I have to say, but listen to what I have to say. So by surrendering to that person, you have an opportunity to speak without having someone speak back to you with, oh, no, don't do that. Oh, you know, you should do this. So that's wrong. Or so you don't get judged. The other was showing shame because you feel shame. You feel shame, you feel blame, you feel it's your fault, you didn't know what to do, you didn't have answers, you couldn't take the pain away. Again, going back to that patriarchal condition or situation because there's no tools there. You blame you blame yourself somewhere deep down, you're blaming yourself for not being able to help fix your wife. That's correct. And wow. I think every I think every husband goes through that, some form of it at least. Because if you, as old as I am, I mean, you, growing up in the 50s and 60s, you are exposed to that patriarchal environment. You know, it's it's what you were brought up in. You know, the, the mothers were the nurturers and the fathers were the, the belt handlers. <laughs> you know, and, but that's the kind of environment that is supposed to, built you up, given you strength, made you independent. It's true, but then you're confronted with a disease that has no back door, mm. really. I mean, to be honest, there are, okay, so let me go through the five and then I'll explain why I- I've Yeah, about please do. So the last of, of the shame, pushing that out the back door is relative to your upbringing and, and the, the, the problems that you have as a, as a human being, as a, a husband in an in unfunctional environment. But the last one is my favorite, laughter. You have to laugh. Laughter releases neurotransmitters in your brain and your nervous system that act like antidepressants inside your own body. Dr. Cousins wrote a book about his journey overcoming disease through laughter. You know, because of that input, that ha ha ha, that smile factor, the tears rolling down your cheeks, the arms wrapped around your abdomen because you're laughing so hard, your stomach hurts. 
that activity creates such an input in the nervous system and in your body. It uplifts you, energizes you. It's like kickstarting your neurological wiring. It's an escape, right? It's an escape mechanism. It's an escape mechanism, but it's also a blessing because you may be escaping from the environment that's causing you sorrow. The sorrow is causing transmissions and neurotransmitters of depression. You get a different kind of hormonal release that pushes you into the wastebasket. Right. Whereas laughter drags you by the heels right out of that wastebasket and is throwing you out in the sun and breeze, saying, this is life. Hey, look at this. This is beautiful. And that can that kind of changes in your in your neurological system overcome the negativity of the wastebasket. So going to a comedy show may be all jokes aside and no pun intended, maybe quite the therapy. That's correct. Mm. That's so correct. explain to us, Frank, uh, habit H A B I T. It's an acronym that you've got, correct? That's correct. What does it when stand for? It stands for healthy attitude can change behavior and initiate thoughtfulness. Healthy attitude can change, change behavior, behavior and, initiate and initiate thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness. Now, you think about situations on a daily basis where um, acts of random acts of kindness that random act of kindness is an elevator it's a, an action and that someone took that was healthy that obviously came from a particular attitude that they perceive or have in themselves it made their behavior to be that of giving And in that process, initiated an element of thoughtfulness that the receiver feels that this person had. This person thought of me. And the giver is also in the, in the position of realizing that what they had done was thoughtful. And that's a repeating process. It starts mm -hmm. with the mindset. It that's starts correct. with a healthy mindset, a healthy attitude. And you say that that can change one's behavior. That could change Frank from beating the crap out of the oncologist to potentially doing something much nicer. Yes. And that, and that initiates thoughtfulness. It, it creates empathy right that's correct it creates empathy and it also moves an individual from reactive which is primal a reactive mechanism of primal dna coding which impacts the sympathetic nervous system because that's where all right so in the brain we have in the middle portion of the brain we have a system called the limbic system and one of the parts of that system is called the amygdala 
Now, the amygdala is our fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. Now, realize we're a sensory organism. We function on hearing, feeling, seeing, tasting, touching. Everything that fits those parameters are considered stimuli. But we take that stimulus in, and our brain filters it. Takes the stimulus, filters it, sends it to where it needs to go to be organized, realized, or recognized. And that's all done by the subconscious. And that's where the habits come in. Because when you're doing something that's fitting those parameters of utilizing the acronym of habit, you're changing your subconscious mind. Mm. You're putting into practice thoughtfulness that is based on forethought. Because forethought is slows you down. We're having a conversation. How much time do you think goes by after one sentence or a, a comment or thought? Less than a second. That's correct. <laughs> one second. And yet, overall, it was or is presently eight seconds in Japan. In Japan, their pause lasts 8.5 seconds. Well, thank God I don't listen to any Japanese podcasts because that would be pretty good. <laughs> well, the reason it's so short is because of the influx of uh, material and information that we garnish and gather every day. Right. You know, we're overwhelmed. Well, that's a fascinating thing. And so that, that has really helped you heal. That's helped you over the years. You, you, you put that into practice daily? Yes. Yeah, so mindfulness, journaling, meditation and prayer, diet, just taking in proper foods. Because what happens when you're in that depressive environment? You eat junk food, comfort food. I was going through gallons of ice cream like it was no tomorrow. <laughs> How long did it take you, Frank? How long did it take you to go on your first date after your wife passed? Uh, three years. Did you feel like you were cheating on her in some some weird way when you were doing that? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, I've talked to several people on the podcast that have lost people, and they all say the same thing. There's there's like a survival's guilt. There's something there that's like feels funny, even though you know you need to move on. Yeah, it's like she's sitting on the shoulder going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't have too much fun there. Yeah. 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 No. Have you been able to find love again? Um, a couple of times it didn't last, uh, probably because I was still not at a point or at a, in a place where I was comfortable enough. Sure. Do you feel uh, like you're in a different place today? 
Um, yeah, most definitely. Writing, re actually rewriting, rewriting the book uh, was not only cathartic, but it it brought back to me the skills that you have a tendency to put aside. Because when you start to get comfortable, things tend to slip away. And, and in that comfort, you think you're comfortable, but you're kind of like slipping back into the rabbit hole kind of situation. Not overly consciously, but in some respects you are. And that's that's what was happening to me. And I think that was the reason for the failure of my three relationships since 2008. You you mentioned the book. We'll finish it up with this. Uh, a promise made, a promise kept. Talk to us about the book. What's your overall message? Who should buy it, et cetera? Um, the overall message is that husbands or spouses who are struggling with grief, survivor's grief in particular, can move forward. Um, I just offer my experiences as an opportunity for them to see someone or read something from someone who's gone through it. And they may find some elements of help. But I think the important thing is the book is letting them know that they're, that they're not alone. That someone else is out there who has and may, and in some instances, still going through the process of moving forward with grief. Because grief doesn't go away. Right. It changes. It oscillates. You know, you have your moments. And understanding that, that, that that's what they are is a good thing. And I think the book does that. Uh, Frank, thank you so much for coming on to share your story. Uh, very, thank very you, emotional, very powerful. Uh, we will link the book in the show notes and uh, wishing you all the best. Thank you, Nate.